Good morning. Uh, my name is Justin Mulder, and uh, yeah, I'm going to read uh, this morning. Uh, just to introduce myself a little bit for those who don't know me. Uh, my wife Cheryl and I have been attending here for uh, about 15 years. Most of our kids um, were born while we were attending here. Taylor was about a year old. Um, so Taylor, Avery, and Cole are our children. Um, Cheryl and Taylor serve on our worship team. Um, in the past, uh, I've been part of uh, Gateway um, on the um, Board of Stewards, and in the last five years, I've been serving uh, at the uh, Abbotsford Christian School Board. And so let me read for you. Um, we're, this morning, we're going to read uh, Revelations 21, 1 to 7. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jeru Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you one final time to find the book of Revelation. Really easy to find. Go to the very last page in your Bible, and that's where we will be. And while you're looking for that, um, I hope you have enjoyed this series as much as I have. It has been such a season of learning and of growth, and I have absolutely loved walking through this incredibly important book. And so now, as we bring this book to a close and we look at these last two chapters, we're going to have an opportunity to kind of stand back and to look at all the pieces that we've been looking at over the last 11 weeks. Kind of like uh, if you're putting a puzzle together, we've been looking at all these themes, all of these windows of divine reality, and finally we look back and there it is, the picture of ultimate reality that God wants us to have. And so I want to give you the plain main thing right on the front end, what we're going to be looking at as we move forward this morning. I put it this way, God's promises are fulfilled. Everything wrong has been made right. Now Jesus, our living hope, reigns eternal, and is, it is our opportunity now to worship him. That's what we're looking at that's where we're going as we look at these last two chapters. So there's going to be three things in particular that St. John is going to kind of re-land the plane on, things that we've seen before, but he wants to remind you of so that we understand ultimate reality. Here's the first one in your note sheet. The purpose of Revelation is to inspire obedience by affirming one hope-filled reality. God wins. 
to inspire obedience. See, we, we usually think that this is a book of signs of the end times with new visions, new dreams, new predictions, new signs to look out for, but really, that's not the purpose of this book at all, like we've discovered. The book is primarily a call for you to obey. It's a call for you to obey. See, many of us were, were looking at this book saying, like, I need, a, I need a fresh vision from God. And God says, okay, here's the vision. Do what it says. Do what the word of God says. Yes, still have the ears to hear the still small voice of God, but you're never going to hear the voice of God if you never do what he says. And the reason why we can be compelled to obey is because we know that God's word is trustworthy and true. That God does what he says he will do. That he will fulfill his promises. And as Paul tells us in the book of Revelation, we understand that the motivation of God is to do all things to bring about his glory and your good. And if you trust that, if you know that, not just in your head, but deep inside your soul, then we are motivated to obey him in every single aspect of our lives. We're not going to treat God like our cosmic consultant. We are going to obey his word because we know that he loves us. And so today, we're getting that glimpse of last things. We're going to get an answer to the question, how does it all end? What happens? How does the story end? We all want to know the answer to this question. Now, I've shared with you already, I, I don't know how you grew up in your house, but with respect to end times, I want to share with you a little bit about how I grew up. My house was filled with things like the, the James Cameron Left Behind series. It was filled with a lot of kind of doomsday books about how the earth would end. And so let me kind of paint a picture for you about my understanding of end times when I was growing up. It, it was a little bit like this. Things are going to progressively get worse over time. And before they get really, really bad, God's going to kind of beam us up in what we call the rapture. You know what the rapture is, right? That's that moment when, um, all, at least the way that the movies tell me, is everyone's on an airplane, right? And inconveniently, conveniently, all the airline pilots, they're Christians, and so they get beamed up, and too bad for everyone else, they crash. And then you have all the other Christians in their cars driving on the highway, and they get beamed up, and they all crash. And then there's a Christian kid, and he's on that seesaw with his unchristian friend, and he's at the bottom, and the non-Christian's at the top. He gets beamed up, and then he scrapes his knee, right? And then, of course, there's parents at the mall. And they're scooting around their kid, and then the kid gets beamed up, and where's my baby, my baby? And the whole world just goes crazy. But then, all the Christians are beamed up to what I like to refer to as kind of the, um, the Christian death star, right? And so Jesus, he points his laser beam at the earth, and kablooey, it all explodes, and we rejoice because that evil place is gone. And then finally, the last thing that God does is... He gives us new spiritual, ethereal bodies. We actually don't have bodies. We're kind of like a Christian Caspers of sorts. Are you familiar with Casper? You know, the friendly ghost, right? And so we all have no more bodies. There's no physical, tangible things. We're just ghosts. And we 
float in heaven and there's one, literally only one practical, tangible thing. What is that? Pews. Limitless pews where we listen to sermons for all of eternity and you're going to like it. And so that was, that was my impression of heaven growing up. Anyone else? Now you're like not very courageous to raise your hand. But that was the house that I grew up in. And it, and it was like, here's the one thing we have to realize. None of it's true. None of it is true. In fact, it stands in the face of everything that we are going to learn from these last two chapters. And not only that, it unnecessarily, oh man, my hand's bleeding. It unnecessarily makes us very afraid of airplanes. Jason, would you mind getting me uh, something for my hand? I just keep bleeding. Um, I remember when I was a little kid, when I was six, seven, eight, my, my parents, uh, they separated, so I was on airplanes a lot. And I remember having this prayer as a little kid, dear Lord, please make sure that everyone in the airplane is a Christian. And if they're not, I pray that one of the two airline pilots would be a Christian and the other one not so that no one gets hurt. Amen. What a great kid I was. Where'd that kid go? Thank you. And so what we have to see this morning is that none of this is biblical. And what I want us to do is to see the full picture of what we've been looking at for the last 11 weeks. So here's the second thing I want you to take note of. Number two in your sermon guide, this purpose of revelation, the purpose of this book is to embolden confidence by affirming one hope-filled reality. God wins. See, this book is meant to inspire you, not to fill you with dread and with fear and agonizing pain, wondering about the future. And this is one of the reasons why when I became a teenager, almost into my adult years, and I discovered the Reformed faith, I fell in love with it because it helped put the pieces together to understand how to rightly read scripture and to see that this book is ultimately about a living hope in Jesus as opposed to living in fear and in dread. So let's remind ourselves, I, I shared this with you in way back in week one. Why was this book written? What was the context of what was happening at that time? John was not writing to people in the way that we often think about it today. Oh, the book of Revelation, strange prophecies, signs, wonders. That's really interesting, but that wasn't the point of it. Oh, everyone's given me nice things. Yeah, sure, thank you. Band-aids are good. I don't know why I'm bleeding, but... And so he wrote to a bunch of people who were facing some absolutely terrible, terrible things in order to give them a living hope in Jesus Christ, to enable them to face things that they were walking through during that time. Let me give you a couple examples of this. Christians were thrown into a Roman Colosseum. Great beasts would come and tear them to pieces. Or while they were still alive, they would have molten lead poured on their heads. Or they would have um, ropes tied around their limbs and animals told to walk in separate directions in order to tear them apart. That was a common occurrence for Christians during this time, the persecution that they were facing. And this book was meant to inspire them to cling to the hope that they had in Jesus. 
Even in the midst of your suffering, dear Christian, God wins. God wins. This message energized the people of God. And it should do the same for us today too. So if you have your Bible, look at Revelation 21 again. And let's look at what Justin had already shared with us. Let's look at it one more time. Starting at verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. Do you see that word? Circle that word sea. This is a reference to the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and void. Darkness covered the surface of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the what? Help me out. The waters. Or another word that is synonymous with that in, the, in Hebrew, the chaos. Out of chaos, God brings order. And so this does not mean that there's not going to be any water in heaven. What it means is everything that is chaos, everything that is destruction will be undone. And everything will be made new. Verse 2. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down. Take note of that. That's important. Out of heaven from God. Prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look. God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. Circle, highlight, underline. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. This is incredible. So here's what we see in these two verses. Three things. Number one, the new heavens and the new earth will be a place. We won't be Christian Caspers. It will be a place. Number two, in this place... God will dwell with us. And these two realities alone should just totally reorient the way that we've often been trained to read about our eschatology, the end times, how things will end. And then number three, I find this one amazing. Look at verse two. It says, the holy city, the new Jerusalem is coming what? Help me out here. Coming down. That's interesting. I thought we were going up. Like what I was told growing up is all fly away, oh glory, all fly away, right? By and by, all fly away. We're all going to get beamed up. We're going to get zipped out. We're going to leave this evil, terrible, earthly place. We're going to move on. And yet what this says is that we're go- the new heavens and the new earth are going to come down. So what is the climax of human history? It's not individual souls rising out and escaping a material world. What we have is heaven coming down and transforming the earth that God has made and called good in the garden. That's what's happening. The renewal of all things. We aren't taken up. Heaven comes down. It's not that Christians flee and are chased away from an evil world. It's that all the evil in the world flees at the coming of Jesus. So what do we see? We see an absolutely redeemed, rewoven, perfect, healed material world. And so in the kingdom of God, 
you will walk. In the kingdom of God, you will dance. In the kingdom of God, you will sing and play and run. And in the kingdom of God, I'm going to eat. And it's going to taste good. I'm going to be a chef in heaven. I'm just calling dibs, all right? It's going to be a lot similar than what we give it credit for, but more beautiful than we can ever imagine. Both at exactly the same time. Now, consider this further, because some of you might still be unconvinced, but consider in the Gospels, after Jesus' resurrection, does he show up as a holy ghost? Or is he given a new glorified body? And is there not a sequence in which Jesus meets the disciples and they've gone back to fishing and they're, they're on the beach. Jesus shows up and he says, give me some breakfast. I want to eat a fish. And not only are they amazed that Jesus has been resurrected, but they're astounded that he would ask for food. Why is that the case? Because even more so in the first century than in the 21st century, they thought that the physical world was inherently evil. If this was uh, refuted as the heresy of docetism in which Jesus only appeared as a man. He wasn't actually a man with a physical body, but it was just a fake for that moment because we all know we're just going to be spiritual, ethereal beings. And yet in this moment, they're astonished because Jesus eats a fish and enjoys it. And so we see this throughout Scripture. If you read in Isaiah, if you read in Jeremiah, if you read in the Gospels, if you read in uh, the Epistles, if you read in Revelation, all of them share this vision that the new heavens and the new earth will be a material place. It will be beautified, it will be glorified, but it will be far more similar than we give it credit for. And also here, it's described as a heavenly city, right? There's walls, there's gates, there's a river, there's a tree of life that produces fruit in its season. All of these references and ideas are there, and yet I don't think that's how we're often taught to read this book. See, this is why the window of the throne room of God, I believe, is so critically important. We catch a glimpse of what heaven will be like. Heaven comes down, and then all of creation gathers around the throne room of God, and we fall down and we worship our Lord of Lords and King of Kings, the one who is sovereign over all things. And so that's the third thing that I put in your note sheet. The purpose of Revelation is to cultivate worship, to cultivate joy and peace by affirming one hope-filled reality that God wins. And every single time we as Christians pray in our homes and open up scripture, every time Christian parents lay their children down to bed and and lay their hand on them and pray over them or, or sing to them, every time we as Christians gather together in this place and we sing praises to God, we tap into this reality We affirm this reality of of what is yet to come, but what we get to experience as a foretaste, as an appetizer, here and now, right here in this place. And so these two verses, they tell us that Christians are not to have this sort of 
escapist view of reality. It's not that you're going to get rescued out of a broken world. It's that you and the broken world that you live in are going to get rescued through King Jesus. Do you see the difference? Heaven and earth comes down. Now, I'm still trying to come to terms with this in my young age, but there is a passage in the book of Matthew that Jesus says that has absolutely astounded me for years. It's when Jesus says, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church as I build it. Now, whenever I read that passage growing up, I always thought that it meant that no matter what Satan and his minions throw my way, I'm going to be able to withstand it. I'm going to be able to survive it. I'm going to be able to withstand the heat. And so you can kind of picture this in your mind, kind of like a, a trailer park in Arkansas during a tornado. And you say, Lord, please save me. Please help me. And so you hide in a bathtub in the fetal position. The tornado rips through and destroys everything. And then at the end, you poke out your head. You see the carnage, but you're alive. Thank you, Jesus. And so that's kind of the idea that I had of the end times. It's like everything's going to hell in a handbasket. Everything's going to progressively get worse. I'm going to pray that God will help me survive. I'm going to poke out my head. Wow, the world is a terrible place. But I survived. Thank you. As though survival is the greatest aspiration for a Christian. And yet I discovered something. Gates are not offensive weapons. Unless you're Samson, he picked one up and he threw it at it. But aside from him, gates are not offensive weapons. They're defensive mechanisms. And so here's what we have to see. As we read this passage, we recognize that the defensive gates of hell will not be able to prevail against the offensive work of the church as Christ builds it. That we are the ones that are on offense. That God is doing a good work in us to redeem the creation that he has made. That all will be renewed, remade, glorified, beautified because of the work of Jesus. And that brings us to the second window of reality. What did we see there? There's John. He begins to weep. Why? Because no one can unlock the scroll. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth is seen to be able to open it up. And he begins to cry and to weep. And the elder says, why are you weeping? Behold, the lamb who was slain, the lion of Judah, he can open up the scroll. He can redeem all things. And then they once again, with tears in their eyes, they come around the throne of God and they worship because God can do it. He can remake all things. And then we see it here. Heaven comes down to earth and darkness flees. Darkness flees. So hopefully we've been paying attention and we've seen by now the type of God that we serve. Do you actually think that God is going to concede anything that he has made good? Do you think he's going to look at the earth and he's going to say, yeah, Satan, you ruined it. Human beings, y'all ruined it. You can have it. I'll go make something somewhere else. No, he made it. And so he will beautify it. He will redeem it. He will glorify it for his purposes. You think of John chapter 3.16, for God so loved the what? What's the word? The world. I thought he just so loved Christians. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Which should then remind us of what we read in Psalm chapter 24. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Yes, God loves his people most of all because we are endowed with the glory of God, that we are made in his image and his likeness. We are the crown of his creation, but he has declared all of his creation good, and he will redeem it. He will say, it is mine. It belongs to me. It will be remade. It will be glorified. And so that is the vision that we see here already. So what sustained these first century Christians who were being thrown into the lions and having molten lava poured into their skulls, having ropes tied to their limbs and pulled apart? And oftentimes, as we read extra-biblical text of human history, many Christians in the hundreds and in one instance at least even in the thousands were crucified together along the Roman road while Romans watched them die inch by inch. And yet... We know through human history that they took all of that with such peace and with such poise. Oftentimes, if you can picture in your mind Christians in a Roman Colosseum gathering together holding hands to sing a hymn, to pray for their enemies, to say what Jesus said on the cross, Lord, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And as the world watches all these Christians be torn apart with such joy in their hearts, they say, what's up with these people? What do they have? And Tertullian, he called the death of Christians seed for the gospel of Christ because even in the midst of so many Christians dying day by day, Christianity grew And within 200 years, 60% of Rome was Christian. Can you imagine that? Often to do with the witness of Christians who were able to suffer well. Why? Because they saw this. They saw the living hope that they had in Jesus. But here is another question that many of us, uh, I think, need to ask. Why a city... Why a city? Have you thought about that? Like, whenever we want some sort of renewal or retreat, like a, we go to a marriage retreat, right? We go to a retreat center. We escape all the noise. We try to find some Eden-like heaven on earth, right? We get away from all the hustle and bustle. We look for that garden, that oasis, that countryside, that escape. And there's even a biblical precedent for this because we know that Adam and Eve, they were formed in the garden. Adam walked with God in the cool of the day in the garden. Song of Songs says that the topic of love is described as a garden. And yet, conversely, what we see about the city, we find Cain, the first murderer, he builds up a great city with his offspring and they are wiped out by the flood. And then comes along the city of Babel and they say, let's make a name for ourselves. Let's invade heaven by making this amazing monument over and against God and they are destroyed. And then Jerusalem even, the city of God, the people of God, this becomes a terrible place where there's sorcery and murder and the murder of children. And then even in the book of Revelation, what do we see? The depiction of 
fallen, fallen is the great city of Babylon. So at least in scripture, we see that this garden is kind of this beautiful place in which great things are happening. And the city is filled with terrible people doing terrible things. And yet, in the new creation, it's depicted as a city. Why? Why? Here's what I think is happening here. I think this is getting to the heart of God. I think oftentimes we as Christians have what I refer, would refer to as an escapist view of creation. It's one of the reasons why I think movies like Left Behind are so compelling to us. We like the idea of getting beamed out, you know, getting out of Dodge, escaping it all, getting rid of this kind of terrible place where all this wickedness and evil, this kind of like Gotham-like city place where we can find the beautiful oasis with God. And yet what God does, he doesn't escape from the creation that he has made. He enters into it in order to redeem it. I love the way Eugene Peterson puts it. He says, we enter heaven not by escaping what we don't like, but by the sanctification of the place in which God has placed us. Those are different things. And then, will there be gardens in heaven? I think so. Will there be lilies and trees and fields and vistas and lakes and all those kinds of things? Well, it seems to suggest that in Isaiah and in Revelation. There's no reason to believe why not. So why is the central image a city? Because it gets to the heart of God. Because God loves most of all the crown of his creation. People who are made in his image and in his likeness. This is the story of Jonah all over again, right here. This is the depiction that that Jewish Christians are thinking about when they're reading the story. They're reminded of the story of Jonah. Here he is in Nineveh, and he's waiting for God to wipe out the great city with 120,000 people. And there's this kind of tree that is over top of him that is shielding him, but then it withers away. And God relents in sending disaster upon the great city. What does Jonah do? He throws a fit. And he he basically says, I knew it, God. I knew that you would do this. I knew that you were slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. I knew that you were kind and compassionate. I knew you would do this. And the crescendo moment is when he says, I wish I was dead. And God responds by saying this. You have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend to it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight, it died overnight. Should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left? And at least for Jonah, that's how the story ends. With a cliffhanger. The question proposed to believers in the Lord Will you do your part to enter into this drama to have other people come to know God for who he truly is? Or will you resist the city, hate the city, detest the city, and the inhabitants of it? And so here we are, Gateway, in the city of Abbotsford. And I would like to assume that, you know, we're a little bit of heaven on earth because we're the city in the country, right? Got a little bit of both. What a great place to live in. A little too much rain, but still great. And yet, what do we know? 
Abbotsford has just a little bit more than 120,000 people, about 140 last I checked, filled with people who do not know their left hand from their right. And we get to make a choice. Will we double down on having this sort of escapist view of reality in which we kind of just put our head in the sand, wait for God to return, and then meet him in glory one day? Or will we actively seek the best interest of the city, like early Christians did in Rome, so that they too might know the good news of the gospel, that the seven seals were opened for them too? That's what the story's trying to do. It's trying to pull on our heartstrings for us to see the plain main thing that God is at work. Because here's the thing, Gateway. In the holy city, there's one thing that we all have in common. None of us deserve it. None of us deserve it. It is only through the blood of Jesus that we have been saved. And I think that should not only tenderize and melt our hearts to be receptive to the gospel ourselves, but it should compel us to share the gospel with those who do not yet know it as well. Look again at verse 4 of chapter 21 if your Bible is still open. It says this, He will wipe every tear from their eyes, There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And here's a verse that touches every single person in this room. Who here hasn't been affected by death? Who here hasn't been affected by dying or pain? or trauma, or disappointment, or wars, or rumors of wars, of human struggle, and torment, and suffering, who in this room has not been affected by this? And so it seems almost surreal to read a verse like this to say one day, It'll all be gone from our vocabulary. No more dying. No more death. Wiping away every tear from our eyes. And yet here it is. This is what early Christians clung to while in the Roman Colosseum. While being tortured and mistreated and having no justice. No entrance into the economy. No relationships. This is what they clung to. And our hearts should long for that too. But there's even more, see? Look at Revelation 21, verse 16 to 22. Let me read verse 16. The city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with a rod and found it was 12,000 stadia, which is about 2,000 kilometers in length and then 2,000 kilometers wide, and then 2,000 kilometers high. And then look down at verse 21 and 22. 
The 12 gates were the 12 pearls. Each gate made a single pearl. The great street of the city was gold, as pure as transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. What does this mean? Well, again, you have to think like a Jewish Christian for a second. Where would, where would the Jews go in order to meet with God? In order to, sing, to, to seek his atonement? In order to seek repentance? In order to enter into his presence? They would go to the temple, right? And once a year, just once, they would go into one man, the great high priest, would go into the Holy of Holies in order to enter into the kabod, the glory, the presence of God. And the Holy of Holies was shaped like a cube. So this is not trying to convince you that in glory it's going to be 2,000 kilometers long, 2,000 kilometers wide, 2,000 kilometers high, and we're all living in a cube for the rest of eternity. It's trying to depict to you in an illustrative form the plain main thing. And what is that? On earth, the kabod of God was reserved exclusively for the holy of holies in which one person only could go in. But in glory... The presence of God will be everywhere. The glory of God will be everywhere. In the new heavens and in the new earth, the world will become the holy of holies. In the new creation, there will be no place where the radiance and the glory of God does not shine. So much so that we find out later in verse 23, there's no longer any purpose for the sun. Or chapter 22, verse 4 and 5, it says the same thing again. Son, you are no longer required. That one star that is essential to human life on earth, without it we would freeze, we wouldn't be able to develop crops, we wouldn't have any oxygen. There's no way that we could survive on earth for a millisecond without the sun beaming in its rays, but in glory, no longer any use for you because the glory of God is all that we need. That's the vision. That's what we get to anticipate as we walk with God. And then we read Revelation 22, verses 3 and 5. Look at this with me. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp, or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. And with the amount of people in this room, and those who are watching online, I am certain that there's many here who have experienced the awe-inspiring presence of God. You've, you have felt his presence. And there are other moments, perhaps, for many of you in this room in which you've gotten down on your knees, you've closed the door, and you've prayed, you've cried out to God, and it has felt like your prayer has hit the ceiling and come back down. There are other times in which you yourself have run from God, and other times in which you've run back into his arms, and he has met you there. There have been times in which you have fought with God, you've wrestled with God, you've screamed at God, frustrated maybe about a, 
the way that your life has turned out, or a cancer diagnosis, or treatments, or the loss of a loved one, and you've looked to him, and you've cried out, and you've said, God, where are you? I can't feel you. Where are you? I don't know where you are. Are you real? I can't feel your presence. And then we see these verses, and we realize that there will be a moment in glory where he sees you and you see him. And I have in my mind the picture like Luke chapter 15 of the prodigal son who returns home. And the loving father, he sees you and with tears in his eyes, he picks up his cloak and he runs to you. And he falls down on his neck and he smothers you with kisses and with hugs and he slobbers all over you. And he says, my son, my daughter, I love you. There will be no condescension. No, you idiot. How could you have possibly done that? No condescension. Just a pure delight that you have chosen to enter in through the gates through the sacrifice of the, the lamb who was slain. And he will say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your rest. And once again, it was that living hope that compelled Christians to cling to their faith even in the midst of the things that they were struggling, even in the midst of the storm of their life. And I don't know about you, but, but I want to live for that moment. I want to live for this. Because I know, at least on a continuum, I can look at the clock and I can tell you right now that we are 40 minutes closer to this than when I first began. We are inching closer and closer to this reality that God will make all things new. So what do we do in the meantime? I want to just take a couple minutes to share with you what we do as Christians to enter into this reality, not someday, but right now as a take it home for you. So here's the first one I want you to see. Christians are to be worshipers with unpanicked urgency because we have a living hope. Unpanicked urgency. It almost feels like an oxymoron, and yet you see the distinctiveness. If we know the final score, we should never respond in panic because we know how the story ends. We're always as cool as a cucumber, and yet we enter in because we know that the world is broken and needs to be redeemed. They need to hear the good news of the gospel. They need to know the joy that we have. We are compelled to share it. We're compelled to enter into the grief. We're compelled to mourn with those who mourn because this is true, not in spite of it. And so we are to be people with unpanicked urgency. I love the story Peterson gives when he says this. He says, when we hail a taxi, we summon a driver in his vehicle to tend to our immediate need to get somewhere. We shout, we get in, and are on our way. We do not make an appointment with the driver for later in the week. No delay is anticipated. Taxi! Everything that St. John writes is immediately relevant. Nothing is held back for future application. This is to be the posture of our lives. Unpanicked urgency. And last but certainly not least, 
Christians are to follow the way of the Lamb. Gateway, let's just have a family meeting for a second. We'll just talk. If, if you're not a member of Gateway, that's okay. You can listen in. But this is for us. We get to make a choice. We get to choose. As a church, are we going to be followers of the way of the Lamb, or are we going to be followers of the way of the dragon? Are we going to enter into the world that God has made so that it could be redeemed, knowing that the great commission of our lives is to enter into the pain and the brokenness of this world so that all will know that Jesus Christ is Lord? That is the objective of our lives. And then we see it in the way that Revelation ends. Chapter 22, verse 17. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let everyone who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. So let me ask you, who's the Spirit here? That's the Holy Spirit, right? Okay, who's the bride? Who's the bride? Isn't that us? Isn't that the church? We're the ones who say, come. I thought we're the ones entering in. And yet the way that the story ends is that the Holy Spirit and the church, they join together and they tell the world, come, join us. The feast, the banquet feast is ready and the entry fee is free. That's what we get to participate in right now. The Holy Spirit says come, but the church says come too. We are to do that. And so if you are not a Christian, if you are contemplating Christianity, our invitation to you as the church of God, as the family of God is, come, join us. Enter into your rest. The banquet feast is ready. The lamb has paid the price. Join us in this journey. And until the good Lord comes again, we as Christians get to say, Come, Gateway, let's do our part. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. We thank you for your son and our rescuer, Jesus, who died on the cross for our sins so that we could be redeemed, made new, glorified, beautified, and Lord, we ask that you would not find us as people who sit on our hands, but as people who enter into the story, as people who invite others to come and to enter into their rest. Lord, compel us to be a church like that. We ask by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would motivate us to do exactly this. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, and our Redeemer.